0: As we said at the beginning, we are today taking this time of our Lord's Day worship not to change the form of our worship. We still come and do everything that the Scriptures tell us to do. We hear from the Word of God. We sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. We encourage one another. We give, we partake of the Lord's Supper. We still worship God as we do every Lord's Day. But today we focus our worship on a very important theological truth, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we have seen the Christian church celebrate and honor and practice Easter for really as long as we can document. As a matter of fact, one of the great divisions, unfortunately, in the body of Christ uh, was known as the Great Schism. One of, it was certainly by no means the only or even the most important issue, but one of the early, the important issues that began that division was how to date Easter. That's why if you ever meet someone who is part of the Eastern Orthodox Church, they celebrate Easter on a different day. The East wants to celebrate Easter on a different day. So although Christians haven't always agreed on the timing or the date of when to celebrate Easter, certainly as long as we can document the Christian church has made much of this particular day. And it certainly is worthwhile. We see all throughout the Old Testament when important miracles of God happens, when God interacts on behalf of his people in unmistakably miraculous ways, the people of God sanctify that event through ceremony. And when we look at the resurrection, we have no problem in saying it is the crowning miracle of all of God's miracles. It is the pinnacle miracle of everything God has done. And so if there's anything worthy of a holiday, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so today as we focus our attention and our thoughts on the resurrection, I wanted us just to do what I'm kind of calling Resurrection 101 or Resurrection Basics. Let's just remind ourselves of what is hopefully all reminders to you about the resurrection and what we need to think of in our minds when we hear that term, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I've titled this sermon, Resurrection Basics. And there's really no better place to get a basic overview of the resurrection than 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you would please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We will begin at the beginning and read through verse 8. If you would please follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me." First Corinthians is a very helpful letter, especially doing what we're doing today in terms of basics, theological basics, because First Corinthians is actually a response letter to a series of questions. We don't have that initial letter, but we can tell by how Paul wrote this letter that what happened in Corinth was there was a great amount of debate and division in the church. The church could not see eye to eye on important theological matters, on important ethical matters. They were debating and fighting, so they wrote a letter to Paul saying, give us wisdom, give us guidance. How do we answer? What do we do here? And First Corinthians is Paul's response back. And so we find in many of its chapters very clear and basic answers to important Christian theological and ethical dilemmas. And what we have in 1 Corinthians 15, if you were to read the whole chapter, it becomes very evident, that there were some among the Corinthians who denied the resurrection of the saints. They affirmed Christ's resurrection, but what they didn't agree with was that one day we would one day bodily resurrect. So most likely they had some kind of, which is actually a fairly popular belief in, among many American evangelicals, which is a shame, some kind of just spiritual existence of life after death not a physical one, not a tangible one. Many people in America, when they think of heaven, when they think of the afterlife, they think of a very ethereal spiritual plane of bodiless spirits, or maybe you have a body, but you're just kind of floating on the clouds, more like a hologram of some kind. But the scriptures are clear. Heaven will be more physical, more tangible, more colorful than anything we have experienced here. The physicality will grow and be better. God loves the physical world. He loves your body. It has never been God's intention to divorce you for all time from your body, but to glorify your body. To give you a body that lives in immortality forever in a physical, tangible, colorful, beautiful world. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians to refute this error that we will not resurrect one day. But Paul knows that the resurrection of believers is dependent upon the resurrection of Christ. The argument he makes ultimately in 1 Corinthians 15 is that because Christ resurrected from the dead, that will then usher in the resurrection of all of his saints. So before he can get to our resurrection, he has to start with Christ's resurrection. And so the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15 is Jesus' resurrection. And it's a very basic approach. And so I have six basics for us. There are six important reminders for us about the resurrection. My hope is that at the end of this sermon, when you think and meditate upon the resurrection, you'll be able to recall to mind these very six important, six important aspects. So let's begin with the first one. The first important aspect, reminder about the resurrection is this. The resurrection is part of the gospel. The resurrection is part of the gospel. It's an indispensable part of our gospel story. Notice how Paul begins 1 Corinthians 15. He doesn't even technically begin it with the resurrection, he begins it with the gospel. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, in which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So, Paul is giving them a reminder, a basic reminder, not technically of the resurrection, but of the gospel. The gospel he's already preached to them, the gospel that he received from Christ himself. The gospel that they already have been saved by, provided they actually truly believe it. And so here's Paul's gospel. Verses three and four. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter or Cephas and then to the twelve. Sometimes Christians even though they know the gospel and they're saved by the gospel and they love the gospel, sometimes even if another Christian kind of quizzes them and comes up to you and maybe impromptu says, hey, you're a Christian, why don't you share the gospel with me? What's the gospel? Let's go. We can kind of clam up. And sometimes even as Christians, we don't always give a very good gospel presentation. And that's not a good thing. And if you feel like maybe that's me, maybe I I don't do well at presenting the gospel when I'm not preparing to or expecting to, then commit yourself to memorize these few verses. What is the gospel? How does Paul define the gospel in its most basic sense? That Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose from the dead, all in accordance with the scriptures. That's a good gospel presentation. But what I want us to notice is that when Paul presents the gospel, he does not leave out the resurrection. So what does that mean? The resurrection is an indispensable aspect of our gospel. The resurrection is part of the gospel story. No resurrection, no gospel. Paul makes this crystal clear in Romans the fourth chapter when he says Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's Romans 4.25. So there Paul separates, just as he does here, the death of Christ and the resurrection. He says the death was to take care of our sins. The resurrection was for justification. So if Christ is not raised from the dead, you have not been justified. And if you're not justified, you're not going to heaven one day. So we see the resurrection is an important part of the gospel. Now, this might not sound very scandalous to you, right? This might not sound like a big shock. You maybe are not surprised by this. If you're a Christian or if you've been a Christian for a while, that might sound like somewhat of an obvious statement. But the reason I would push back just a little bit and say, it might be a little bit more surprising than you think, is because in my typical experience, both, I've, I've made this mistake myself, and I've seen others make the mistake, is that American evangelicals tend to have a very cross-centric approach to evangelism. That typically, when I hear evangelistic Christians regularly trying to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to people, it's actually not uncommon for the resurrection to never come out of their mouths. It's very, very common for people to maybe do street preaching or do door-to-door evangelism or they're just talking with their friends and to say something like, well, you want to know what I believe as a Christian? I believe that Jesus died for your sins and if you would just believe in that, you'll be saved. Now, don't get me wrong. I actually do think that message can save someone and I'll explain why in just a second. So I'm not trying to shame you if you've ever said that. I've said that multiple times. But notice what's left out of that story. Jesus didn't just die for you. He's not a dead savior. He's alive. Why do we leave that out? That's a really important part. So really, we don't want to tell people that Jesus died for their sins. We want to tell people that he died for their sins and he rose for their justification. He's alive now. Now, the reason I say this isn't, I'm not trying to shame you, is because the Bible itself will oftentimes sort of summarize the entire gospel message under the story of the cross. Paul actually does it in this very letter. We won't turn there, but if you were to read 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, Paul has this famous dialogue or monologue where he says, "The, the, the message of the cross is foolishness to the world. And he even in 1 Corinthians refers to the gospel as being the message of the cross. So, it's it's not like this super sinful or super terrible thing if you've ever summarized the gospel with a cross-centric view. The Bible itself does that. But we need to know that in different contexts, Paul is willing to make more general statements than others. And when Paul talks about the message of the cross or the gospel of the cross, he is assuming... The resurrection is part of that story. And you want to know how we know that? Because in 1 Corinthians, he describes the message of the cross as foolishness to the world. But guess what we all patently know? Someone dying on a cross is not that foolish. The Romans loved doing that. People died on a cross all the time. Thousands of men have died on a cross. Some of the people Paul wrote First Corinthians to most likely may have even paid money to go to a gladiator ring and watch people die on a cross. It was a spectator sport. Die, that a man died on a cross is not foolishness to the world. But it's because when Paul says that he understands the theological message underneath it. That Jesus wasn't just some man who died on a cross. He was the son of God atoning for sins who rose from the dead. That's what's foolishness to the world. That's what Rome doesn't believe. So yes, the Bible will sometimes summarize the whole gospel in the cross. But I would challenge us as Christians to as often as we share the gospel to be as clear and specific as we can be. And you want to know why? I don't know how, f- what news sources you all follow, and if you even check the news. And, but you want to know what was the big story of my last week? I saw it on almost every news thing. It was popping up all over my social media. You want to know what was the big story? There was a big national poll. Should, did anybody see this? Anyone have a, have a clue what I'm about to say? There was a big national poll that was done, and it was reported that for the first time in American history... Less than 50% of the country says that they go to church. As as long as we've been recording this in our country's history, the number has never been so low. This means that when you meet a random person, your chances that they know that they go to church and that they believe that Jesus is is the Son of God, that He rose from the dead, have been cut in half from what it used to be. So here's why I say that we can no longer assume the people we're preaching the gospel to have some kind of legitimate Christian upbringing and, and generally know what we're talking about. I guess what I'm saying is congratulations to every person in this room. You've been promoted. You're all missionaries now. This is uh, The United States of America is officially a mission field. When you meet a stranger, you should assume that this is basically someone from a foreign undiscovered country and I just happen to speak their language. We have no reason any longer to believe that the random people we meet on the streets have a general, true understanding of the Christian gospel, especially because that 49% that does go to church, I hate to say it, but most of those churches, I don't trust their presentation of the Christian gospel. We need to be very clear now. We can no longer assume people generally understand what we believe. They don't. So tell them accurately. Jesus died for your sins, was buried, and he rose from the dead. And if he didn't do that, then we of all men are most to be pitied. The resurrection is a crucial part of the gospel. The second thing we learn is that the resurrection was bodily. The resurrection was bodily. Look at verse 4. That he was buried. I actually find that kind of interesting. Why does Paul feel the need to waste ink and paper to tell us that? Let's be honest. Does that really matter? What matters in the gospel? It matters that he actually died and that he actually rose from the dead. Why do I care whether he was buried or not? Was it in the tomb? Was it underground? Was it, why does this matter? But apparently it mattered to Paul. It shows up in his gospel presentation. And guess what? It mattered to the early church. I don't know if you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed. You should be. We, we do it in our church here fairly regularly. It shows up in the creed as well. I would argue it's the most important document of all of church history other than the scriptures. And even that, the creed says that we believe Jesus Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate, dead, and buried. They even take it a step further. I want you to know not just that he was actually buried, but who who was overseeing the government at the time. Why is his burial important to us? Well, there's multiple answers to that. To some degree, it's part of how in the first century this story was vindicated. Because if we know Christ was buried... And then people are claiming he rose from the dead. How can you check that? Go to the tomb. If he's still there, they're liars. So some of it was for first century vindication. But I would argue that underneath, Paul is trying to subtly refute a heresy that had already begun to start spreading in his day. But it really didn't take off until after Paul died. But the greatest threat to the Christian faith in the earliest centuries of the church was a group called the Gnostics. Gnosticism was first century, first century Christianity's version of of like atheism is for us. It was the, like the primary cultural attack on Christianity. And now the Gnostics eventually became very widespread. It's very, very difficult to talk about what they believed because it was just such a ubiquitous movement. You really, you would need to listen to hours of academic boring lectures to know What Gnosticism is. But one of the key components that all scholars agree upon was an even more narrow issue within Gnosticism called Docetism. People who believed in Docetism were known as the Docetics. And you want to know what was the key issue of Docetism? That Christ didn't have a real body, that Christ did come from heaven. But it was like a phantom, it was it was like a hologram, it was just this heavenly apparition. It was he was just like a spirit that you could see, but he didn't have a real body, and that his sufferings were just apparent. This was very popular, this became a very popular belief that the Christian church had to put to death that Christ didn't have a real body. So what is Paul reminding us when he tells us that Christ was bought was buried? Why is that important? Because you don't bury ghosts. You don't bury spirits. You bury bodies. You bury people. You bury human beings. You want to know why Christ was buried? Because He was a real person. And He had a real body. And the reason that matters in terms of the resurrection is because what came back to life? The buried body. He didn't just get a new body. He wasn't just a spirit that reappeared. The same body that was put in the tomb was the same body that came out of the tomb. The burial is very important. Remember the story of doubting Thomas? Doubting Thomas, he heard from his own his fellow disciples, Jesus rose from the dead. I don't believe it. The scientist of the group, the empiricist. I got to have hard evidence before I believe that. So Jesus gave it to him. What did Jesus say? Feel my scars. This is the same body. Why, do, why is it important that Jesus was buried? Because he had a body. Because he was a real human being. Now again, this might not seem scandalous to you. You might say, well, okay, I knew that. But I would argue this is still an important apologetic point for us. And you want to know why? Because docetism in its first century form has gone, but it is itself sort of resurrected in a new form. We unfortunately spent last Easter at home. So I don't expect you to remember the message I preached, but my entire sermon last year was primarily on this point that Jesus had a body and I quoted from a New York Times cover article from the year before so three years ago on Easter Sunday the New York Times released an article written by a progressive liberal pastorics claiming that the resurrection of Jesus in Scripture is really meant to be interpreted as a metaphor. That no, a dead person did not actually rise from the dead. But what is this? It's just a story of how the message of Jesus can never be conquered. How the love of Christ resurrected in his disciples and it will never pass away. So what are they saying? The resurrection was non-literal, non-physical. But guess what? You don't bury moral stories. You don't bury heartwarming love stories in a tomb. It's just as relevant today as it ever has been. Jesus was buried because he had a body. The resurrection is part of the gospel story. The resurrection was bodily. It was literal. It actually happened. You need to teach your children. This is very important. Jesus rose from the dead in history. The world we live in, the ground you walk on is ground that a dead man came back from the dead on. He breathed our air. He walked our sod. This is a real story. Another thing that's important to Paul to mention here The resurrection, point number three, the resurrection happened on the third day. Look again at verse four. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. So it's important for us to hold and to maintain that Jesus Christ was in that tomb, was dead for three days. He was buried on the third day. now why is this important there's some speculation Uh, uh, some of the reason we don't know for sure uh, but probably the most popular speculative reason was that there was sort of a superstition among the Jewish people that you couldn't really confirm a person was dead until the third day that there was some kind of Jewish superstition that your soul kind of hovered outside of its body And it was possible to revive or be resuscitated in this certain period of time. Now, again, the Bible doesn't explain that. We don't know for sure. But some people think that God ordained Christ to be gone as long as he did to firmly make sure in everybody's mind he was really dead. He was really dead. So that's potentially the reason why it's so important. But I want to do something which it might not seem of crucial importance to you, but I think anything that deals with the truthfulness of scripture is very important. So let me go on a quick, I don't even know if a rabbit trail is an important term to call it, but I want us to understand, what do we mean when we say he was dead for three days? I want to push my idea on you for a moment, though it's not my idea, this is what I'm getting from the scriptures, of how to interpret this, because if you think about it deeply enough, we kind of have a a problem here. Is the Bible really being honest with us? What did we do as a church on Friday? We did Good Friday. Why do we do Good Friday on Friday? Well, because we think Jesus was dead on Friday. Okay, so Jesus died on Friday evening. Now, we're worshiping the resurrection right now at 11.15 a.m. on a Sunday. Why do we do that? Well, because we think Jesus was resurrected Sunday morning. So what's the problem? Are you doing the math here? That ain't three days, folks. 24 hours from Friday evening... 24 hours is what? Saturday evening. That's one day. Another 24 hours is Sunday evening. Now we got two days. So we're already past the resurrection and we still have a whole day to go. If Jesus was died on Friday, we shouldn't expect a resurrection until Monday evening. Because of this alleged problem, there's a very, very popular view. Now, if you hold this view, if you were taught this view, please, I'm not like here to attack you. This is by no means something that should separate our Christian fellowship or separate the church. So please don't be upset by this. Just just hear me out for a moment. Just take it in and pray about it. But there's a popular view that Jesus actually died on a Wednesday, resurrected on a Saturday night, and then his tomb was found on Sunday morning. And where this comes from is Jesus, you know, the constant in the scriptures. Jesus, He would be dead on, for three days. He would be, be in the belly of the earth for three nights and three days. And he'd be born on the third day. And there is some evidence in the Old Testament that every once in a while they would do these random Sabbaths that were not on Saturdays. They would have these midweek Sabbaths. And so people think that that's what happened. Because the other problem we have to bring into this equation is there's good reason for the Friday-Sunday narrative. The Gospels are crystal clear that Jesus died on the day of preparation, which was preparation for the Sabbath. Jesus died on Friday, the day of preparation and this is so much of the gospel narratives over his death involve around this awkward timing of his death because he dies the day before the sabbath and this is why the jews were so nervous like we need to get him off the cross right now because we're not allowed to work on the sabbath and he's gonna have to hang there all day and this is why the women who show up on the first day of the week they show up at the crack of dawn and what do they show up with burial spices because they weren't they didn't have enough time to properly bury him because they were trying to rush just to get him in the tomb before sabbath the bible is very very clear that jesus died on a friday and was found resurrected on sunday morning and so and the reason it's so clear is because we know that he died the day before passover or forgive me the day before sabbath and so people move it to maybe a midweek sabbath resurrect on saturday because that's the only way to make the time work out. But let me just give you my perspective that I think is the true perspective. And that is this concept of three days and three nights is what we call a Jewish idiom. It was, it was just a general phrase of expression for three consecutive calendar days. In other words, when we read that phrase, we want to impute to it a very westernized American specific mathematical equation. Like Jesus died for, was, in the, was dead for three days, we would need 72 hours. Right? Stopwatch it. You know, we need, on the dot, we need 72 hours, or else the Bible's lying to me. But I would argue that the Jews didn't count it like that. It was not in any of their perceptions. There are tons of scriptures that I could point to, but for the sake of time, I just want to point you to one. Keep your marker here, turn to the Gospel of Luke, and go to chapter 13. I think this is a really clear way of how Jesus counted times in terms of consecutive intervals of days. Luke chapter 13. before we read it if I were to come up to you today like let's say after church you were to say hey I'd love to have you over for dinner tonight and I said listen it's been a busy week with holy week I'm just really tired Uh, I can't I can't do dinner with you for now but I can do dinner three days from now how would you count that if I said let's not do dinner today but let's do it on the third day you would probably think Sunday to Monday Monday to Tuesday Tuesday to Wednesday you would probably expect me on Wednesday but we're going to see here that's not how Jesus counted Luke chapter 13, look at verse 32. All right, let's begin in verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day until I finish my course. So when Jesus counts three days, the current day he's in is already a day. Today, tomorrow, third day. So if I were to tell you using Jesus' lingo, I can do dinner with you not today, not tomorrow, but on the third day, what would that be? Not Sunday, not Monday, Tuesday. You wouldn't expect me Wednesday, you expect me Tuesday. Not today, not tomorrow, third day. Jesus' way of counting is the current day counts. It's just consecutive three days. And by the way, if you want, there's a really helpful blog online I can send to you if you want more scriptural evidence for this. The point is, is that the Jews were not counting this mathematically. Three days is an expression, the third day is an expression for three calendar days. Not today, Sunday, not tomorrow, Monday, but the third day, Tuesday. So when did Jesus resurrect from the dead? Not today, Friday, not tomorrow, Saturday, but the third day, Sunday. So I would, I would just let you know, I don't think Jesus died on a Wednesday. I think the Bible's pretty clear. He died on a Friday, he resurrected on a Sunday, and the Jews had no problem calling that a three-day burial because Friday one, Saturday two, Sunday three. Like I said, not a huge issue, but it's fun to talk about. Jesus, point number three, Jesus' resurrection happened on the third day, which I believe was Friday to Sunday. But since you're in the Gospel of Luke, Let's foreshadow our next point. Turn to chapter 24. Jesus says some interesting things after his resurrection that I think will be a nice segue into our next point. 24. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 25. What has happened here Is the disciples are on the road to Emmaus. Jesus is resurrected, but they don't know yet. Jesus appears to the disciples, but he miraculously blinds them from recognizing him. So the disciples are talking to Jesus, but they don't know they're talking to the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus asks, like, why are you guys so gloomy? And they're like, Are you the only guy who's been living under a rock for the last three days? We have good reason to be gloomy. And then Jesus is depressed. And the text is going to tell us why Jesus was so dissatisfied with their answer. Luke chapter 24, look at verse beginning in 25. And he said to them, Oh foolish ones. Now, you've, many of you have read on, I can see through your eyes, but just in case you haven't, let me stop. Why would Jesus dare call these faithful men foolish? Weren't they doing something righteous? They're sad. They should be sad. Their Messiah is dead. And Jesus looks at him and says, why are you guys sad? And they say, because we loved Jesus, and he's gone. And Jesus says, fools. Why are they being foolish? By just recognizing what everyone in Israel knows, which is that the Messiah is dead. Well, here's why they're so foolish. Verse 25, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Why are they fools? Because they should have seen the resurrection coming. The Bible has been telling this story since Jesus took his first breath. And not just, you're not just talking like a proof text. We're not just talking, hey, there's this one Bible verse in in Isaiah 53 that you can kind of see resurrection. He's beginning with the Psalms and the prophets. He says the whole Old Testament is ultimately telling this story. The whole thing is about me right now. You fools. By the way, they appear to the disciples, tell them the story. There's still disbelief, and so we have another similar thing. Look at verse 45. Or, forgive me, verse 44. Speaking with the whole group of disciples now, Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's the whole Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus dying and rising from the dead on the third day was a biblical teaching long before it ever happened in history. And why did it all happen? Jesus says, everything written about me must be fulfilled. So that brings us to our fourth point. The resurrection is the fulfillment of scripture. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look in verse 3 with me again. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. The death of Jesus was promised in the scriptures before it happened and then he continues that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day again in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus' resurrection happened to fulfill the words of a God who cannot lie. It happened to fulfill the promises and prophecies of a God who cannot not tell the truth. And this is very important for us, I want you to know, because what this means for us is that the resurrection did not happen in a vacuum. Here's what I mean. A lot of times when I hear specifically Christian apologists, I really like apologetics, I get into that, Christian apologists love to present the resurrection as if it happened in a vacuum. And they say things like, well, why do you believe the Old Testament? Why do you believe the Old Testament? Well, Jesus did and he rose from the dead, so... Now, I actually think that's not a half bad argument. I've said that, there's a place for that. But guess what? Jesus believed the Old Testament was worth believing before he rose from the dead. He did not tell his disciples, oh, praise God, you guys knew. This Old Testament was kind of up in the air, but now that I'm resurrected, now you can really believe it. He said, foolish ones, you should have believed it before this happened. You see, we love to present the resurrection like it was just this display of power. Like God was like, boom, Jesus is resurrected. Okay, now I'm trustworthy. Now you can believe me. It's just like this proof that God exists. It's just this, this, this oh, look at that amazing thing happened. Now we just need to go and, and, and listen to him and stuff. It's the other way around. It did not happen in a vacuum. In other words, here's a better way of being more specific. There's, uh, there was a, a famous atheist by the name of Christopher Hitchens who died about... I don't know, seven to ten years ago. And I remember one time he was in a debate with one of my favorite Christian apologists and he said this, if I was sitting on a bus and somebody came up to me and said, you know, I was once dead but I rose again three days later. He said, even if you convinced me that that was true, so what? So what? That means your arguments are better than my arguments? How does that follow? I don't care if you raised from the dead. Put your arguments on the table and let's see who's right about reality. So what? Uh, Guys, a man rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. I guess weird things happen. So what? You see, when you try to divorce the resurrection from scripture, you're left with a meaningless event that merely amazes you, but you don't know what to do with it. The scriptures are the context of the resurrection. The reason we know the resurrection is such good news is not just because it's happened, but because God has given us an interpretation of why it happened. We know what it means. We know why it happened, and that's all because of the scriptures. There's a theologian, I'll just be very blunt with you about, I, I have a lot of very significant disagreements with N.T. Wright. I don't necessarily recommend N.T. Wright. But when it comes to the resurrection, he's got some really good stuff. And here's what he says on this. Perhaps the most important thing about the first paragraph of 1 Corinthians 15 is what Paul understood the resurrection to mean. For him, it was not a matter of the opening up of a new religious experience, nor was it proof of survival of life after death. It meant that the scriptures had been fulfilled, that the kingdom of God had arrived, and that the new age had broken in the midst of the present age. It had dawned upon a surprised and unready world. It all happened in accordance with the scriptures. He understands that the reason, the primary amazing thing about the resurrection is that it fulfilled the scriptures. And the scriptures give us an interpretive grid over what it means. It is very, very important for us to understand that the resurrection was not just, oh, wow, look at this big event. This must mean something special. Let's go back and fill in the the gaps. No, the resurrection was part of the story God has been telling and continues to tell. It was a fulfillment of the scriptures. Number five, I'm gonna need to really speed up my time here. The resurrection, point number five, the resurrection is historically reliable. Resurrection is historically reliable. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. Now let's begin in verse verse 5. That he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, yet again, I ask the same question I've asked in a couple of other points. Why did Paul find it important, as he's telling about the gospel, he tells about the resurrection to remind us that Christ, after he resurrected, appeared to so many people? Well, the primary reason that Paul does this is because what Paul is trying to do as he speaks to a primarily Gentile audience who was not living in Jerusalem at the time that this happened, is reminding them, by the way, you can fact check me. I know what I'm saying is a little audacious. It's pretty radical. I'm I'm telling you that a man rose from the dead. That's impossible. I'm telling you it happened. But just so you don't think I'm some weird religious zealot, I'm some bizarre cult leader, I've got good news for you. There's a group of about, oh, I don't know, 500 people in Jerusalem. Many of them are still alive. You can go ask them about it. Verify me. Fact check me. I dare you. He mentions the apostles and James, people they know. Paul is saying, he wrote this early enough after the death of Christ. He's saying, listen, you don't even have to just take my word for it. There's a lot of people you can go ask. A lot of people saw it. Paul is reminding them that this is not just religious lore. This isn't just tradition that's been passed down. This is something that happened in history and we saw it. We have eyewitness testimonies to it and lots of them. Keep your marker here and turn to 2nd Peter. 2nd Peter chapter 1. Peter says something very similar although he actually talks about the transfiguration and not the resurrection in this account but the principle is still the same. 2nd Peter chapter 1 verses 16 through 17. And then, by the way, he goes on to say how the scriptures are as sure a testimony as eyewitness accounts, but that's for another sermon. But what's Peter's point? I'm not just a Jewish man passing on to you Jewish tradition. I'm not just a religious guy, and this is the religion of my father, so there you go. It's not like any other religion in the world where we're just continuing to teach what our fathers have always taught. He's saying, what I'm telling you, I saw it happen. I heard it, and a lot of us heard it. And Paul's doing the same thing back in 1 Corinthians 15. This is, you can prove this. Now, we don't live in a day and age, obviously, where we still have living people who can tell us they saw the resurrected Christ. But nonetheless, the principle still remains that Christians have, for the last 2,000 years, been boasting and bragging about the authenticity of the resurrection story. It is without a doubt, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is without a doubt the most historically attested claim of anything that has ever happened in antiquity. And there's nothing that comes close. Nothing. If you deny the resurrection of Jesus, then you need to be consistent and say, we don't know anything about all of history before the invention of the printing press. That's when history begins for you. Because if you can't believe the resurrection based on the evidence we have, you can't believe anything. No one existed before the printing press. You have no proof of that. There is nothing in all of antiquity that has the kind of robust, historical attestation like the New Testament Gospels. It's astonishing. The principle that Paul is saying is a principle that applies for us today. The story we're telling is not some radical religious story. It's a historically attested event. So why don't more people believe in it? Well, there are a lot of ways to try to get around the evidence of history. Some people claim that Jesus merely resuscitated. He never actually died. The Romans were really good at killing people. Like, really, really good at killing people. They loved it. Rome didn't make that mistake. They put a spear through his side after hours on a cross. And by the way, the apostles did not attest. When they saw resurrected Jesus, they didn't see a hobbling, limp, emaciated Jesus. Guys, I made it. It was Jesus in glory. A new body capable of things that he wasn't even able to do before he died. He came back more powerful than he was in the first place. That's not resuscitation. That's glorification. People will also claim that every single, all, all over 500 people, it's just mass hallucination. No, n- no other time have we ever had that many people recorded of having the same exact hallucination. But this is the one time, we'll just make an exception for this one time. Some people say it was obviously just made up. Because isn't it ironic that the only people who saw Jesus were, oh, I don't know, his followers? The people who wanted him to be alive? Doesn't that sound a little convenient to you Christians? Well, guess what? That's actually not true. Thomas heard about the resurrection. He didn't believe it. As a matter of fact, you read the Gospels, all of the disciples were said to be in doubt. Read Matthew 28. Even when Jesus gave the Great Commission, right before the Great Commission, guess what it says? All of the disciples were there, and some were still doubting. He did not appear to people who believed in him. He appeared to people who no longer believed in him because he died. As a matter of fact, here's the best part of that argument He appeared only to people who believed in him. Who wrote 1 Corinthians 15? Paul, a.k.a. Saul, the man who encountered Jesus while on the road to persecute people who believed in him. No, Jesus did not appear only to people who believed in him. He appeared to people who hated him. We read in our, in our call to worship this morning from Matthew, you want to know who else saw the resurrected Jesus? The guards at the tomb. And they ran away in fear and they told the Pharisees and the Pharisees believed it but they said we can't let this get out so make up a story. Lots of people who hated Jesus saw his resurrection and even believed it happened but they still refused to believe in him. That's why the most common way the Quran by the way I don't know if you ever read this in the Quran you know how Muslims get around it? The Quran has this famous verse that says the Jews and the Christians believe that Jesus was crucified but he was not crucified it was just made to them to look like he was. Now I don't know what that means And guess what? Neither do the Muslims. That's why there's whole schools of debate and theory as to what that verse means. The most popular one is that before Jesus' crucifixion, a man who looked just like him was switched in and out. That's what you're left with historically. But here's the most common way. You want to know what's the most common way to deny the resurrection, the evidence of the resurrection? It's what we call circular reasoning. The only way to get out of the history of the resurrection is to first start with a presupposition, resurrections don't happen. Now, show me the evidence. Bart Ehrman is without a doubt the leading scholar in the entire country when it comes to people who love to find someone who will discredit the authenticity of the gospels, uh, the trustworthiness of the scriptures, the historicity of the resurrection. He is the, the famous guy. His books are, he, every time he puts a book, it's number one on New York Times bestseller. He is very popular. He, he writes blogs all the time about the resurrection. And he says, what I'm about to quote, he said this in other places and, and other ways but here's one he, he, he gave us a, a theory as to maybe what happened why was the tomb empty he agrees that Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross as a matter of fact he goes on to say it's that Jesus Christ of Nazareth died on the cross is without a doubt the most sure thing we know in all of history that's a direct quote he knows Jesus died on the cross and he knows the tomb was empty so he proposes a theory that maybe some of the disciples took the body and then as they were carrying it away the Roman guard saw them and they killed them and now we have three dead bodies and they, that was malpractice. They didn't want to, so they just went and threw the bodies away. Buried them where no one could find them. Women show up, tomb is empty, now all the Christians think Jesus is alive. That's what he presents and then this is what he says about that. Is this scenario likely? Not at all. Am I proposing that this is what actually happened? Absolutely not. Am I proposing that this is, or forgive me, is it, more probable that something like this happened than that a miracle happened and Jesus left the tomb to ascend to heaven? Absolutely. From a purely historical point of view, a highly unlikely event is far more probable than an impossible one. So how does Bart Ehrman get around it? Circular reasoning. The resurrection can't happen. So whatever evidence you have, we have to interpret that to some other conclusion other than what we know can happen. That's called presupposing what you're trying to prove. That's exactly what he says. I'll take an unlikely one over an impossible one. So maybe dogs ate the body. Some people have said that. Likely? No. More likely than a resurrection. So another very famous atheistic scientist, Richard Lewontin, Not talking specifically about the resurrection, but talking about this same principle. I want to read this quote to you. It is refreshing honesty from our secular leaders. Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its constant failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories. And why do we do all this? Because we have, quote, a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the world, but on the contrary, we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and set of concepts that produce material explanations no matter how counterintuitive no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated that materialism is absolute for we can not allow a divine foot in the door anyone who could believe in a god could believe in anything To appeal to an omnipotent deity is to allow that at any moment the regularities of nature might be ruptured and that miracles could possibly happen. Let me summarize all that for you. Here's what he's saying. Science does not lead us to atheism. Atheism leads us to science. That's what he said. That's what he just said. We are not compelled to interpret the history of the resurrection in materialistic terms by science. Rather, we have a prior commitment that all things need a material explanation, and then we go to the evidence and say, how can we give this a material explanation? You want to deny the resurrection of Jesus? All you have to do is commit a logical fallacy, presuppose what you have to prove, and then move on from there with that cognitive dissonance in your head. Just start from the get-go. There is no God. There are no miracles. Now let's talk about the resurrection. That's how you get around the resurrection. So what do we know about the resurrection? It is historically reliable. It is historically attested to. Last point, we're so long on time, I'm going to be very brief here. The resurrection conferred authority. Paul in verse 5 and in verses 8 through 9, he specifically mentions, not just that Jesus appeared to many people, he specifically mentions that first he appeared to the 12, and then lastly he appeared to me. And you want to know why that's so important? Because seeing and knowing the resurrected Christ was a crucial element of having apostolic authority. You can write down in Acts chapter 2 when the apostles decide to replace Judas with Matthias. They're figuring, who who do we choose? Who do we choose? And Peter gives them a criteria. Here's what the men, the man who will become uh, an apostle, here's one of the things he had to have done. He gives a list. And one of those things is he had to have been with us and seen the resurrected Christ. the resurrected Christ, learning from the resurrected Christ, and being commissioned by him was vitally important. And by the way, Paul wasn't part of that first group, and that's why Paul has to mention yeah, my story's unique, but I still I saw the resurrected Christ and he commissioned me. The reason this is so important is because our entire Christianity, as we confess again in one of our ancient creeds, is that the, the church is holy, we're purified, set apart, we're Catholic, universal, global, and we're what? Apostolic. Our entire Christian experience, everything we know about Christianity, ultimately comes from the apostles. We don't even technically, let me be very careful with this, we don't even have any words from Jesus. Now we do. I'm not saying the Bible's claims about what Jesus said are inaccurate, they're 100% accurate. But you don't have anything from Jesus. You have something from Luke who tells you about Jesus. You have something from Matthew and Mark and John and Paul. They're the ones who tell you about Jesus. They're the ones who tell you what Jesus said. We put our entire religious enterprise, we are putting entirely in the trust of the apostles. Why do we do that? Well, because Matthew 28, the Great Commission... The apostles were the ones who Jesus gave them the charge. The resurrected Jesus had authority and he, by his authority, said, you are my eyewitnesses. Go into the nations and teach them everything I taught you. So the way we obey Jesus is by believing those whom he sent. But then that presupposes the last question, which is, okay, well, where did Jesus get that authority? Jesus had this authority and he conferred it to the apostles. Where did Jesus get that authority? Well I would encourage you to write down in your Bibles Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 that because God raised Jesus from the dead what does that mean? Therefore he has given him the name that is above all names that at the name of Jesus every tongue should confess and every knee should bow that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The resurrection gave Christ all authority on heaven and on earth that's why the great commission begins with the resurrected Christ saying all authority has been given to me. He didn't inherently have it. He received it in his resurrection and then he passed it on. So essentially what am I saying? The reason you're a Christian today is because Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead and was given all authority in heaven on earth. He was conferred authority and then he conferred authority into the apostles. So the point is is without the resurrection we have no reason to listen to the apostles and no reason to listen to Jesus. So in summary, I, I thank you for persevering The resurrection is, number one, part of the gospel. Number two, the resurrection was bodily. Number three, the resurrection was on the third day. Number four, the resurrection is the fulfillment of scripture. Number five, the resurrection is historically reliable. Number six, the resurrection conferred authority. I summarize it in this. A key component of the true saving gospel is that in history, Jesus Christ rose bodily from the tomb on the third day after his death to fulfill the scriptures and receive authority from the Father.